0: How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. What a beautiful and magnificent hymn written by John Newton. Now, this hymn Amazing Grace is arguably the most famous Christian hymn ever written in the English language. One biographer of Newton estimates that it is sung at least 10 million times annually around the world. Now Newton himself was born in London in 1725. It was the son of a commander of a merchant ship. He later himself was pressed into military duty in the Royal Navy, but was kicked off of the Navy for being insubordinate and trying to escape. He was actually cast out while they were at sea and cast off to the country of Sierra Leone in West Africa where he was treated harshly. He was abused. He was beaten. These slaves actually had to smuggle food out that they had just to give to John to keep him alive. This went on for a couple of years until a remarkable occurrence happened. When a ship was sailing off the coast, it saw some smoke coming up from the African coast, and it docked there near the sand. And it turns out that the captain of this ship had had been good friends with John Newton's father. And he rescued John Newton after two years of despair and brought him back to London, England. Or else we may never have heard of him or been able to sing this hymn. Well, despite his terrible experience in West Africa, he became the captain of a slave trading ship himself. It was finally through a dangerous storm at sea that God rescued John Newton from both the storm and also called him to repentance and belief in himself. And he was saved and then repented of his slave trading ways. And It was later that he would then, in his first pastorate, write this hymn. See, what John Newton had done is he had spent the rest of his life marveling at God's amazing grace in his life. He looked back at being rescued from West Africa in his despair as God's amazing grace. He looked back at that storm at sea and realized that he had been saved from imminent death and he praised God for his amazing grace. And then most of all, he looked back at his forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus and saving him from death and despair and realized that it was God's amazing grace that had saved him even a slave trader. Well, I wonder what went through your mind this morning as you sang this great hymn. I wonder what your emotions were. I wonder what you felt as you reflected on these lyrics. I wonder if you remembered the grace of God in your life throughout the years. What does God's amazing grace mean to you? Now, not not generally and not to John Newton, but what does God's amazing grace mean to you personally this morning? Because, friends, do you see what we're singing when we sing this hymn? We are singing a song of the utmost joy, a song detailing the depths of our salvation, that we were but a wretch, wicked, dead, and yet God in His grace found us and brought us to Himself. Grace is the freely given, unmerited favor in the love of God. It is this favor that gave us sight. It is this favor that saves us and gives us new life. Friends, does God's grace amaze you? Does it give you great joy in the midst of your struggles and stresses of your daily life? Or have you been a Christian for so long that you don't think about it anymore. Or maybe you've never heard of the grace of God. Maybe you're new to this church or even new to Christianity. Well, I encourage all of us to step into our story today. I encourage you to see what Jesus sees. I encourage you to watch what Jesus does and to be amazed again at the grace of God. So if you will turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark, we will continue our look at this beautiful, biographical sketch of Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. Remember last week we looked at the first of these five controversy narratives in this early section of Mark. We saw that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he actually has authority to forgive sins as he did with the paralytic. And now we see Jesus continuing his ministry, but the opposition is building. It's building, and it's building slowly but surely up until his death in Mark chapter 15. So the second controversy narrative begins in verse 13. We'll read through 17, and we'll see another shocking story. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, once again in our story today, we see that the crowds are flocking to Jesus. The word is out that he's a great teacher, that he's a great miracle worker, and they are flocking to him to see him because he's doing things that no one had ever seen before. And so people continue to surround him. And in our story today, we'll see two different groups of people. And this will serve as our outline this morning. First, We'll see, that we'll see the tax collectors and sinners. And we'll take them together as the first group, the tax collectors and sinners. And then secondly, we see the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Well, first, let's look at this first group, the tax collectors and sinners. You see, in verse 14, Jesus approaches Levi, the tax collector. This is the same man known as Matthew in other gospel accounts. It appears that he was known by two names. Now, this is typical. We see in those days many people like Simon Peter, John Mark, had multiple names. Well, in those days, there were two main taxes that were paid to the Romans. There was a land tax and there was a customs tax. Now, in Capernaum, which was on the Sea of Galilee, the customs tax was usually a fish tax. Now, it's shocking that Jesus... He could go to anyone he wants. It's shocking to this crowd that he would go up to this tax collector. It was shocking because these guys were the bad guys. They were hated and despised by society. Now to give you some background, a tax collector was essentially a small business owner. He would pay Rome a certain amount of money each year in order to have the ability to tax his fellow Jews but he would tax them over and above that amount in order to make a profit. He was a businessman. So if he had to pay Rome 10,000 dirhams a month for the ability to tax, he would then tax people, say, 20,000 dirhams a month, and he would keep the difference for himself. But see, it doesn't just end there. That's typically what we think about when we think about tax collectors, but they weren't just hated because they cheated people out of their money. No, it ran much. Much deeper than that. At the time, Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire. This empire was huge, as you know. It stretched all the way from India all the way on over to Europe. And with their army, with, without the ability to have airplanes or missiles or other armory, they had to take these taxes, to raise these taxes, to fund their massive armies, to conquer more lands, to oppress the people that surround them. They were a ruthless empire. And so, hear this, for a Jew for a Jew to purchase the right to tax his fellow Jews to help them fund their very oppressors was unforgivable. Tax collectors were traitors. They were despised. And so this goes well beyond you took a few extra dirhams for me that you shouldn't have. No, Levi is a Jew, and he was ripping off his own people to fund a godless, overbearing government that was oppressing the Jews. You couldn't like this guy less. He had lots of money, but not a lot of friends. And so Levi would have been at his tax collector booth that day. He probably had already ripped off some fishermen who had come to him with their catch. And then notice the dramatic, even cryptic words that Jesus says to Levi just two words follow me follow me that's it there's no explanation it's it's in fact the same command that we see of the fishermen in Mark chapter 1 but to put ourselves kind of in the story this morning We need to understand that it would have been a big, big deal for Levi just to get up and leave his tax collector booth. This was his business. This was his investment. It was his livelihood, his career, his work. Luke chapter 5 says that when Levi left his tax collector booth, he left everything. Do you see how stunning that is? First, that Jesus would even approach a tax collector. We'll get more to that in a minute. But second, that Levi would actually follow him immediately without any excuses. He didn't say, now Jesus, I'm really busy right now. I'm slammed. Can you come back later? This is the biggest catch of the day. This is when I make most of my money and it's high season for the fishermen. And Jesus, this is a big move. It's a big move. I need some time to think about it, some time to pray about it, to ask my mentors about it, and I'll get you an answer in a couple weeks. I mean, you're calling me to give my life away. See, we'd expect Levi to either say something like that or, or maybe even more likely to say, yeah, right, Jesus. Like, I'm going to follow you. And we'd be right. That would be the response apart from God's grace. Only God's grace gives Levi the ability to respond in that moment. Only God's grace gives him the ability to have his eyes open, to see his heart move, to see his desires change, so that he can literally drop his life and follow Jesus. Do you see how scandalous and even amazing God's grace is? This radically transforming, life altering, God glorifying potential of grace is that even Levi, even the lowest of the low in society, even a tax collector could be saved. And follow Jesus. This is why the Pharisees are shocked. But I think the real reason why you and I are oftentimes shocked and surprised when we read these accounts is because we mistakenly think that we are different from him. We think that somehow we are better than him, that somehow we are deserving of God's favor But the reality of the situation, my friends, is that all of us are capable of what this man did, and even worse. Apart from the transforming operation of grace. It's grace, grace, grace. It's all grace. Not one of us can bring anything to God except the grace of Christ. King David realized this when he prayed to God in the passage this channel read for us earlier. He says, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? It was based on that passage that John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote them to be played together on a Sunday morning service in celebration of what God has done. Well, the story just gets more and more scandalous because if you read down to verse 15, we see that not only did Jesus come up to Levi and his tax collectors, but now he's having a party. Having a party at Levi's house with all the sinners, with all the tax collectors. They've gathered together to have dinner, a symbol of deep fellowship and acceptance and love. Now, sinners were a class of people with immoral jobs, like Slave traders, prostitutes, beggars. They included people with disabilities and disease. And here, literally, Jesus is reclining elbow to elbow, as they would have done, eating together in fellowship, eating beside these filthy sinners. Now, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Well, you might say he's showing them grace, and that's true. But think further with me about this. See, I think what Jesus wants us to see is that any of us with secret shame or sin, any person with hidden darkness, would say, if he could love the tax collectors and sinners, I can be loved too. The story that we're reading is about Jesus coming to the most wicked people in Capernaum, to the thieves. To the tax collectors because of grace. See the same thing with the Apostle Paul when he reminds us, when he says, I was a blasphemer, I was a a violent man, I persecuted the church, I imprisoned Christians, I was on the giving end of beatings and stonings. And yet he could say in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is by grace that I have been saved. Friends, Friends, maybe you're here today and you're feeling unloved. Maybe you're feeling even unlovable. Maybe you're currently immersed in some wicked sin. Maybe maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you've been stealing funds. Maybe you've been involved in whatever it may be. Maybe there's some skeletons in your closet, something in your life that no one knows about. And you wonder, how can God love me? There's an interesting scene in the movie, The Fisher King, starring Robin Williams. At one point, Robin Williams' character and his date, Lydia, they're saying goodbye after their first uh, time together, their first dinner, their first date. And he tells Lydia, can I call you? Lydia responds and says, I don't want to see you again. It was nice to meet you, nice to spend time with you, but goodbye. And he says, well, well, why, Lydia? We've had a great time together. We've had a fun time. We've laughed. It's been great. And she says, well, if by some weird accident you don't hate me at the end of our first date, at some point you will hate me. And then once you get to know me, you'll leave me, and I can't take that rejection. I don't want it. Thanks for taking me out. Thanks for spending time with me, but please leave me alone. Go home. At that point in the movie, Robin Williams confesses something to Lydia. He says, I've been watching you for some time now, and I've noticed. I know that you're clumsy. I know that you knock things over. I know that you're easily down on yourself, that you're discouraged, that you're often depressed. I know that you don't have any friends, and you're horribly shy and timid. I I know all that. I know all that. And I still love you. And I won't leave you. I love you. And she's just stunned, just standing there. And she asks him, are you for real? And her life is just transformed. See, for someone to look at your very worst and to still love you is an industrial strength kind of love. It's a love that won't wear out. But God's love is, oh, so much deeper than that love I've just described. It's so much deeper. You see, there's no human-invented illustration that can possibly come close to the deepest reality of God's love for, for us. See, God loves you, and He has seen you at your worst. He sees all of your sins in the past. He sees your sins in the present. And He sees every single one of your sins in the future. He's your author and creator. He knows your every single motive. I mean, he knows even when you do good things with poor motives. He sees that. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your every thought. And yet he loves you at your worst. Oh, that is so much greater than any other love. So friend, if you're here today, I encourage you, come to Jesus, regardless of what you've done in in the past if you come to Jesus and you place your faith in Jesus, then Jesus has died for those sins. Because all of us are wretches needing to be saved. Every one of us. The Bible says that all of us have sinned against a holy and righteous God and deserve eternal punishment. That none of us are exempt from this just punishment. That justice had to be done for sinners to be admitted into the presence of a holy God. But thankfully and joyfully, God did not leave us in this bad news, did He? He gave us good news, the greatest news in the world, that by His grace, the greatest picture of His grace, Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead so that we can be reconciled to Him forever if we would repent of our sin and believe in Christ. He offers that forgiveness to each and every one of us. That's grace. To get what we don't deserve. To not receive death, but to get life. So I encourage you, if you haven't embraced Jesus, come to him today. Well, the story gets even better, or perhaps worse, depending on your heart this morning. Let's look at the second group of people that Jesus interacts with here, and that's the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees. These were the guys that prided themselves in looking like they followed all the rules. They were the rule makers and they looked down. They pointed their finger at the rule breakers. And so they were outraged that Jesus would spend time with sinners. Now, why wasn't he with us? They thought. We fast twice a week, we memorize scripture, we practice the whole law. Jesus, why are you eating with those guys? They've done nothing good. Look at us. Look at us. We have it all together. And so Jesus, eating with them, just incensed the Pharisees. You can feel their, angry boil, their anger boil within them. This grace of God was the furthest from their minds. See, what they believed that the law was to accomplish, they believed the law was a staircase to heaven. That if they could earn it, if they could get to heaven on their own, then they could be saved. But the law was never meant to do this. No, the law was meant to expose our sin. It was meant to show us our need for grace. The point of the law was to show us that we can't keep the law. That's it. We can't earn salvation. It gives us something tangible to bang our stubborn heads against until we throw up our hands and say, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't satisfy God's requirements. Help me, God. It was an x-ray machine, useful for diagnosis, but the law provided... No cure. It can reveal a fracture, but it can't save. And the Pharisees missed it. They tried to save themselves by keeping their externals looking good. All the while, their hearts were wicked. They'd flaunt their goodness, yet they hated the people Jesus loved. They hated the things of Jesus. They were hypocrites, making sure their outsides looked good while their insides were a mess. Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, I think is a wonderful illustration of a Pharisee. Now in this book, uh, the lead character, Dorian, is a young man with stunning good looks, and yet he lived a vain lifestyle. And then one day a man, an artist, makes a portrait of himself, and he looks at the portrait and he sees the beauty of the portrait, and he becomes jealous of its permanence. And he makes a wish. He wishes that somehow, way, he could stay looking like that all of his life and that the picture instead would become old and decrepit over the years. And so his wish comes true. It was granted, and for the next 18 years, the picture changes. The picture gets older and older. But Dorian remains the same handsome self. And so he continues to give in during this time to extravagant living, to sinful lifestyle. He brings pain and torment to others. A woman kills herself because of him. And while he never changes, that portrait on the wall slowly transforms into a hideous monster, mirroring the depravity of Dorian's soul. Well, at the end of the book, that, the painter, the artist, comes up to Dorian and begs him to stop his sinful and licentious lifestyle, and in his anger, rather than stopping Dorian, stabs the artist to death, and then goes to the painting and attempts to destroy the painting, when instead it is he who is destroyed. He is turned into a monster, while the portrait in the end turns back to that handsome image that it was in the beginning. It's a powerful illustration that reminds us of Jesus' scathing denunciation of those who were outwardly religious, but inwardly corrupt. See, the Pharisees looked clean on the outside, but on the inside they were full of greed, full of self-indulgence. They wore a facade of righteousness. But inside their soul was dark. They were monsters on the inside. Jesus later calls them white-washed tombs, filled with, with dead man's bones. Friends, I hope this is as convicting as it was for me this week. I hope you are convicted by it as well. Because see, none of us are as good as we look. I encourage us not to try to fake it. I encourage us not to try to look good for the sake of others, for the sake of looking good before others. None of us are perfect. We don't have it all together. You don't. I don't have it all together. And we need to be careful not to think that we're doing well just because we look good on the external, just because we attend church or go to all the Redeemer conferences or attend potlucks and baptisms or join a small group or serve on Fridays or read your Bible every day. No, friends, that doesn't make you good. No, friends, God cares more about your heart than your outward religiosity. We must be very wary of Hypocrisy as Christians. How would your life change this week if you spent more time being holy instead of appearing holy? How would your life change this week if you confessed your sin to somebody and prayed with them instead of spending your time trying to convince them that you're doing well? I encourage you as fellow uh, attenders of Redeemer Church of Dubai to open up to other Christians, to share your struggles, to not run this race alone, to get a friend to be accountable with, to open up about your marriage, your pride, your lust, your debt. Or maybe you're here today and you've completely bought the lie of the Pharisees. Maybe you think you're saved because you have gone to church all your life and you've done good things. And you've thought that saves you. But Christianity is not a set of rules. No, it's trusting in Christ's grace for salvation. And if you've never done this, please do it today. I encourage you to repent that you've tried to earn God's favor by being good and acknowledge that you are far from good and cling to Christ's finished work on the cross. Well, finally, what does this mean for us as a church? What does this mean for Redeemer Church of Dubai? I mean, if Jesus was the most popular guy around, at least to the sinners and tax collectors, and he was a miracle worker who could get a hearing anywhere he went to preach, to heal, and instead he went to the house of a tax collector. What does this mean for us? What are the implications for us as a church? Well, I think there are at least four things. There's so much more, I'm sure. Perhaps you've thought of some during the course of the sermon. But four things for us as a church. One, it means that we invite anyone and everyone to our church gatherings. And we see Jesus did not discriminate, so neither should we. It's not too late to call, email, text your friends. Even bring them to the potluck tonight or to our Christmas Eve service next week. There's an invitation card in your bulletin this morning. I encourage every one of us to commit to give that card out to one friend this week. Maybe even pick them up and bring them to church, or meet them down in the hotel lobby so you can walk in together with them. I know it's oftentimes a little nerve-wracking coming to a new place where you don't know anyone. So invite anyone and everyone to our church gathering. Secondly, we can practice hospitality. We can practice hospitality. We can invite people into our home, friends, strangers. It's not too late in the Christmas season to host your own Christmas party in your home. Maybe you can invite everyone that lives in your building. I was so thrilled to hear this last week of one family that went door to door in their apartment building, their flat building. They knocked on doors and sang Christmas carols and passed out invitations for a Christmas party going on in their flat this weekend. They're thrilled to have so many non-Christians, so many people from their building come to hear the message of Christmas. It's a brilliant time to gather people together to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, to look at the hope that we have in the Savior that was born and to point them to the hope that we have. It's a brilliant time to do that. And I encourage you to continue to do hospitality wherever you live, to even choose where you live via the location and also the type of place. Perhaps you can plan that in such a way that you could host small groups and parties if that is something you're able to do. Well, thirdly, we need to love the hurting people around you. We need to love hurting her, the hurting people around us. Cuz this is exactly what Jesus did. If that's your housemaid this morning, be the best employer ever. Care for them well, extend Christ's life, like love to them in kindness and compassion. If that's your server at a restaurant, be the best customer that they've ever seen. Ask them questions, be grateful rather than complaining and extend grace to them when they mess up. If that's your boss, if your boss is hurting today, be the best employee you could ever be. Even if that boss is mean and arrogant, work hard to make them look good. Clothe yourselves with compassion toward them. If it's a student that's hurting around you, be the most caring and loving fellow student that you can be. Look out for the kids who are lonely and ostracized, the ones who sit alone at lunch and who don't seem to have any friends. Sit by them. Talk to them. In fact, that's how I became a Christian. When I was 16 years old, another 16-year-old boy decided to befriend me and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with me. If there's someone struggling financially in your life, I encourage you to be the most generous person ever to look for needs that God could use you to fill. And as a family, you can consider celebrating Christmas not in merely buying gifts for one another, but instead spending on gifts that will have a great impact on others. Well, finally, fourthly, as a church, we can intentionally love people from other cultures. We can love people from other cultures. I shared this story during the summer about our last potluck of the spring. Now during this event, one of our neighbors who has a window that peers right into our courtyard at the Redeemer Villa, she confessed that she had watched people come in and out of the potluck all evening. She was glued to the window all night. She couldn't resist telling Gloria the next week how amazed she was at the potluck. said she was amazed. She said, I watched all night and I couldn't believe it. I saw Indians and Africans coming together. I saw Asians and Europeans coming together to your house. And they looked happy. (laughs) They were joyful. They carried big plates of food. And then they ate together. She said she was stunned. And she looked at Gloria and said, Why would you want to do that? Upon which Gloria said, It's because of God's grace in Jesus Christ that he tore down the dividing wall. He broke down all barriers. He brings people together from all tribes, all tongues, all nations. He unifies himself through Jesus. Gloria said it's because Jesus loves us and because we love Jesus that we come together. And this was stunning to our neighbor. It's stunning because our unity and our diversity adds the depth to our gospel words and displays the grace of Christ to the world. But I wonder when we sing Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, I wonder if we have in mind only wretches like me. You see, God's grace extends beyond any ethnic lines, beyond any socioeconomic lines. It extends beyond all geographic lines. So I encourage you this morning to talk to your neighbors regardless of what ethnic group they are. Maybe bake some food for them, bring it over to their house to talk with them. Encourage us to go back to the same coffee shop or bakery that we go to and learn people's names, build a relationship with them. Talk to your trainers and employees at a gym you work out at. Invite people from different ethnic groups to your small group. As a church, we need to see all the people that we come across here in the UAE. We need to see them as people who have souls. We need to see our restaurant server as one who has a soul. We need to see that laborer that walks by us in the food court on Friday afternoons as one who has a soul. We need to see our housemaids as ones that have souls. Our neighbor has a soul. Our boss has a soul. Filipinos have souls. Africans have souls. Indians have souls. Europeans have souls. Every person from every tribe, every tongue, every nation was made in God's image, and has a soul. And at the end of our passage, Jesus says that he came to the healthy, not to the healthy, but to heal the sick. Not to the righteous, but to the sinners. And I think what that does for us at Redeemer, I think that opens up our ministry here at the church to every single person in the UAE, doesn't it? That's amazing grace, that God could do his work of grace in everyone's life. This is what John Newton understood. Until the day he died, he never stopped marveling at the grace of God through Christ in his life. For him, his life was the clearest testimony of the grace of God. Before he died, he wrote his own epitaph for his tombstone. It said, Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. My friends, we can't forget his grace. As we approach Christmas, as we celebrate the Savior that was born, let's marvel again at God's amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father, your unfathomable grace is simply breathtaking to us. You give us your lavish and everlasting love, even while we were your enemies you came to us you pursued us you showered us with your grace while we were tax collectors and sinners oh father help us to shower this grace on others here in the uae we pray that as a church we would have compassion for those living around us oh that we would care as you care and love as you have loved oh we thank you this morning for your amazing grace